Amen. Well, let's turn together to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 6, and we will be starting today in verse 12. I don't know about you, but I don't, it, it, whether you've ever felt this, that you need kind of a touch, the touch, as someone said, of the master's hand, which, by the way, is the title of this message. Maybe you felt like Isaiah felt when he fell down in his presence and said, depart from me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And God touched him and called him and changed his life. Like John, when he fell at Christ's feet, it says, like a dead man. Ever felt like a dead man or woman? John was a godly apostle at the end of his life, and he still felt that way. He fell at Christ's feet like a dead man, but Christ laid his right hand on me, he said. He touched me, saying, fear not, I am the living one, and he made me alive again and gave me a whole new calling in life. Maybe that's what you're feeling like right now. You're saying, Lord, what can you possibly do with what I've done with my life? Or maybe a loved one is feeling that way. Lord, I'm feeling so dead on the inside. Lord, how could you ever use me? I'm cooped up at home. I'm used goods. Lord, help me. This whole COVID thing is really getting me down. I'm lonely. Without his touch, well, without the touch of the Lord... Uh, turning your life around would be like I read the other day that the Philadelphia Phillies, a baseball player who was introduced by a broadcaster with these words. He's turned his life around, ladies and gentlemen. He used to be depressed and miserable. Now he's miserable and depressed. That's about all we can do with our lives. Ever felt that way? Maybe that's you. Well, if it is, you need to know that all things can become new in his hand, and it's literally available to us whenever we turn to him. No matter how bruised or beaten or battered or scarred or scared you may be, no matter how wasted you may feel, maybe how ruined by sin or by circumstances or by age, we're going to see today that all you need is the touch of the master's hand. Like two weeks ago, it'll be some pretty rich theology today, a pretty thick forest, so you'll need to stay with me. But before we plunge in, here's kind of the forest for the trees so you know where we're going. We're going to see that we were not created to be like solo players, to be instrumentalists. It's not at all up to us. The pressure's off because we are instruments, not instrumentalists created to be mastered. And understanding that fundamental identity is key to the Christian walk and to God's working in us. As instruments, in light of our instrumental identity, you might say, we Christians have an incredible capability. Really, ultimately, we've got a a single capability, one that was totally beyond our reach when we were slaves to sin. The ability at any time in our lives, at any point of temptation, to choose Choose a new master and to be mastered by him in a way that we could never have mastered ourselves. And and we do that when we surrender. So simple. 
And today we'll see how. The answer when you feel like you need the touch of the master is simply to surrender to your master, to your maker. And as you do, maybe not right away, but in the end, more and more, you'll know the touch of the master's hand. That's where we're headed. First, we're going to see how this is true theologically. Sound doctrine is critical to understand this. And then we'll see how to experience it practically when the rubber meets the road. Romans 6, starting with our verse, first, first verse for today, verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace now. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to the one who you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you were now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. And then the famous last verse of chapter 6. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, there's a lot there. But ultimately, it's very simple. Because what Paul's doing here is weaving together two themes in this passage. And today, we're going to take them apart. We're going to unbraid them and look at each of these themes separately. The first half has to do with the fact that we are instruments. Our instrumental Identity. Again, starting in verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Notice he doesn't say, don't let yourself sin. Rather, he says, don't let sin sin. Don't let the sin in you sin. That you should obey not your lust, but its lust. You have a different identity now. That's not really you. The idea being that when we sin, what we're actually doing is giving in to another power, a dark power, a, a, a dissonant power that goes against the grain of who you are now. Rather than being mastered, mastered by the, the maestro who can make a masterpiece of your life. And so from the very beginning, he sets up this idea of our instrumental identity. 
And it's so important that we know this because unless we realize it in our minds, we'll never realize it uh, in our lives. That's why sound doctrine is so important. So again, try to let it sink in. Bear with me, verse 12. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness. That's all you are, an instrument. But present yourselves to God as those alive to God and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. You you can't pull up yourself by your own bootstraps doing good in and of yourself. That's not the way of sanctification. Again, the undergirding teaching here is that we are by nature instruments, not instrumentalists. We were created to be played by God to the glory of God. But then Adam fell, and this old man came into being inside us, and all of us inherited him, like we talked about two weeks ago. And that wicked old man is still there once we're Christians. We're living with our ex under the same roof who knows how to push all our buttons. And what that means is that that the act of sinning is not your real problem. No, sinning is a symptom caused by something that happens before you sin. And that is, as we'll see, it happens when you present yourself, when you give yourself over to be played by the wrong power. And it's so important to understand this, to understand that we're not players, but instruments, because we keep trying to be players in the Christian life, rather than doing what it takes to be played by Christ. And there's a world of difference between the two. So we're slowing things down here. We're freeze-framing what happens when we're played, whether by sin or by righteousness, whether by the devil uh, or by Christ. So we don't try to do what is right as though it's all up to us or not to do what's wrong as though it's all up to us. So let's let this doctrine of our instrumental identity really sink in. Next verse, verse 14. For sin shall not be master over you. That is the root problem of which sin is the symptom. And that is when you let sin master you, you're plugging into the old master. And the idea is that if you're a Christian, that doesn't have to happen anymore because you're no longer like hardwired to him. No, as a Christian, now you can choose to be mastered by someone else by turning to him. Not by turning to yourself to make it happen. As a Christian, next line, verse 14b, for you are not under law, but under grace. We saw last time that we're no longer under the law that bound us to the old man. We're no longer one flesh with the old man who brought out the worst in you in in like a marriage from hell. No, we've died with Christ so that that marriage is over and we've got a new partner who aims to bring out the best in us, but he does it, not us. Which he does not as we manufacture what is best by our own striving all by ourselves, but as we plug into him. And again, there's a world of difference between those two things. 
What then, verse 15, shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. And this is the heart of the passage, so listen carefully. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? And having been freed from sin, he goes on to say in verse 18, you became slaves of righteousness. He's trying to, to, to tell us something so that we really understand it and then practice it. Again, it's our instrumental identity that he's assuming here. And what he's saying is this. Don't you remember that your condition has changed, that, that you're a slave to righteousness now, that you've been kind of retrofitted, you've been rewired as a new instrument. That's some of what it means by the word slave. It's much like we use today uh, in the field of industrial mechanics or of computers. A slave is a device that's wired to be directly and immediately responsive to another, to something else. It can't do anything in and of itself to something like a printer or a computer. And the idea here is that before you became a Christian, you were hardwired to a computer that had nothing but, you know, filth on its hard drive. You were a printer that printed out hard copy for a sleazy old man of a computer. But now you've got a switch. And you can choose because you're not permanently plugged in to that old computer anymore. And on top of that, your own internal wiring has been changed by Christ. You can plug into that old sinful socket. And when you do, you quickly discover that, that you're not wired for it anymore. And so in the end, you hate yourself when you do it. But it's not really you that's doing it. Again, you're just the instrument. Paul's trying to motivate us through this doctrine not to try to manufacture the right actions, but rather to plug into the right power. And now he's doing it by saying that we've been rewired. Just how were we rewired when we became Christians? Well, moving on to verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart. What he's saying here is that he's given you a new heart. And so you've been reworked on the inside for obedience not disobedience. You became obedient from the heart, reading on, to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Another translation says you became obedient from the heart to the teaching whereby you were molded anew. And having been freed from sin, you were now slaves of righteousness. What this means is that you were, re, you were remolded into a new instrument that's not made for disobeying the teaching though you still can. And so if you're a true follower of Christ, your desire to sin, to do what you know you shouldn't do thanks to the old man that is in you, that desire is now, a, is now superficial compared to the deeper desire to obey God. And so woe be to us when we don't, don't because it goes against something deep within us. We're different instruments. What happens when we don't obey God? Well, picking up the thread again in verse 21. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things to which you are now ashamed? 
For the outcome of these things is death. We derive no benefit from disobedience before we were saved, he's saying. And much more now that we are saved, we are ashamed when we do disobey. It brings shame. It cuts against the grain of our new self. It's like we've been rewired for 110 volts. And so, duh, look what happens to you when you plug into 220 volts. In the next chapter, Paul tells us exactly what happens when we do that from his own experience. When he does the very thing he now hates, as he puts it in Romans 7, 24. Oh, wretched man that I am. That's what it's like now. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? Then he goes on to say, Jesus Christ, just plug into him. Romans 8. That's what happens when a slave of righteousness indulges in sin. It's sheer wretchedness. Uh, no wonder Paul uses the strongest possible negative in our passage for today to answer the question, shall we continue in sin? May genoito, may it never be. I wouldn't touch that socket with a 10, that 220 socket with a 10-foot pole. It's kind of like what happened to our hair dryer, what our hair dryer must have felt like in Singapore uh, when Julie and I visited my folks there years ago, for, uh, uh, soon after we were married, what the hair dryer must have felt like if it were a person. We were visiting there, and of course, we brought along our US-made uh, hair dryer. And the first morning, I plugged that thing into a two, the 220-volt socket, and guess what happened? Sparks flew, and there's a whole lot of smoke. I don't know how many times I warned Julie not to do that before I got there, because I was the expert on Singapore, right? I went to high school there. Make sure you use the transformer, Julie, that takes it from 220 to 110. Brian, you see, <laughs> you see you're no longer wired for that kind of voltage. You've got a different heart now. You're a new creation. And so there's like this dissonance, this resistance on the inside, this, this gut-wrenching, spirit-quenching, spark-generating plume of smoke when we plug ourselves back into that old socket. He's trying to motivate us not to do what is right or not do what's wrong, but to plug into the right place. Oh, wretched man that I am. Because we've been rewired to be directly responsive to another power. We've been remade to be slaves of righteousness, instruments of God, recreated to be played by the master and by him alone. So the first idea, and I know I've got, got, spent some time here, but it's so important that we understand who we are or we won't do the right thing with who we are. First idea then is our instrumental identity. It's like the old hymn, channels, remember it? Only, blessed master, but with all thy wondrous power flowing through us, thou canst use us every day and every hour. It's him, not us, when it comes to obedience and sanctification and all the rest. It's our instrumental identity. But the second idea on that foundation that's woven into this passage has to do with our single capability. We've 
We're, we're, we're freeze-framing what happens when we're played, whether by sin or by righteousness, whether by the devil or by Christ. So don't try to do what is right as though it's all up to us and not do what's wrong as though it's all up to us. So you got it? You're just an instrument. Don't try to be a player. Because in light of our instrumental identity, we have a single capability, which has to do with, and here it is, Simply surrendering. It's all in two words that Paul uses here again and again. The words present yourselves. Five times he uses them. In verse 13, do not go on presenting the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness. Verse 16, um, present yourselves to someone uh, uh, as slaves for obedience And then verse 19, I am speaking in human terms for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness. To present yourself means to place yourself at someone else's disposal. And here it means to place yourself at his disposal whenever you need him. That's a freeze frame of True obedience. As an instrument that knows to the core of your being that you are dead without him. Dead as a, you know, a cold trumpet sitting on the floor. It means more and more to get into the habit of doing it, of presenting yourself to greater, ever greater depths of surrender and desperate dependence on him at the point of temptation, at the point of doing what's right, before you try to do what's right. It means to place yourself at his disposal in a posture of complete and concentrated availability as a channel only. A posture of complete availability to his complete Sufficiency through your complete inadequacy. It's like Major Ian Thomas said. He's all over this. He, in a book he wrote called The Saving Life of Christ, which is all about this, the doctrine that he alone can save us, not just from the penalty of sin when we become Christians, but from the power of sin as Christians. Can't do it ourselves. He put it, As he put it, it has to do with making yourself available as a redeemed sinner to all that God has made available to you in his risen son. Let me say it again. You make yourself available as a redeemed sinner to all that God has made available to you, not in yourself, but in his risen son. Let it sink in. What it means is to present yourself To present yourself means to place yourself at his disposal whenever you need him. To make yourself available as an instrument that is useless apart from him. It means to place yourself at his disposal in a posture of complete and unconditional availability as a channel only. 
a posture of complete availability to his complete sufficiency through your complete inadequacy to ever greater depths of surrender. That's the bottom line of the Christian walk. And what does it look like in practice? Well, it applies to anything and any time you need him. Like a word of wisdom, when I'm counseling through difficult marital situations where there's no human unraveling of this thing, I'll often clench my fists under the table until my nails press into the palm of my hands as a sign of how dearly, how deeply I need God for something to say here. And of how fervently I'm praying, Lord, help me. And I'm amazed at how often he comes through with just the right word. Not always, but regularly. Remember Peter's prayer when he was sinking? He, he said three words, Lord, help me. Those prayers work. That's the bottom line of prayer a lot of times. My father called them arrow prayers, and uh, they're often the, the, the secret of surrender, just having the presence of mind to say, Lord, help me. And not, not just going on to try to do or say the right thing. It's like Romans 10, 13. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And it's not just talking there, there about salvation. It's talking about sanctification. It's saying, whenever, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, will be played through the touch of the master's hand. It applies to everything we need as we surrender to him at every point of need. From the word of wisdom you need to responding to your kids or grandchildren in the right way to power over temptation. Just freeze frame it and turn to him first. You know, I'll never forget one summer after my junior year of college, I was working a summer job at an engineering firm in, in Minneapolis, and a brilliant young engineer was in the same office with me, one who actually thought he could, he could do anything and everything, <laughs> and he almost could, and, and so he had no need of God because he did not need help with anything. We had many discussions about Christianity over lunch and about other things as well, and um, so much so that I soon came to see that there was one thing he could not do, and that was to control his sexual appetites. He didn't think anyone could, and he knew Christianity wouldn't help, even if he did want to change. And, and no Christian, myself included, could tell him otherwise, because Christians are no better than anyone else in this area. Just look at the televangelists, he would say. You know, your role models, they're falling right and left. This was back in the 70s, and I had to hang my head in shame. Well, Dana loved to invent things, some of which have actually been patented. And one day he came into the office with what he called a biometer. I later found out that it measured your blood pressure, your heart rate, and your temperature. Essentially, it measured your level of excitement. And it put out this electric tone that got higher and higher as your level of excitement increased. Well, one day he went from desk to desk with this thing, from man to man, and at each desk, after a bit, you'd hear this biometer go off the scale, this high-pitched scream, and then they'd start laughing. I didn't know at the time exactly what was going on, but when he got to me, he wrapped this thing around my arm and put some kind of electrode in the palm of my hand, and then he flashed in front of me 
a very revealing picture of his girlfriend. And every eye in the office was on me. So I started clenching my fists. And I thought, Lord, they're all watching. I think there's something at stake here, Lord. Lord, help me. Save me. It was like this total dependence on him, abject dependence, desperate dependence. Lord, save me. Save me from myself, from my sin. Now, go to it, Lord. And in an instant, it was like complete surrender. And then everything kind of went into slow motion. Somehow I felt I shouldn't push the picture away or even look away. I just looked at it, somehow without letting it sink in as the whole room watched me. And the tone stayed steady. And then it started to go down. And he said, what are you doing? How did you, you do that? And then he was just quiet, more like speechless. For once, Dana Manti was speechless. And the tone then went even lower. And he was finally listening. He listened far more intently to my tone than he ever listened to my talk. Even to my most brilliant answers to all his questions about Christianity. Because people... Close their eyes to advice, but open their eyes to example, to the power of Jesus Christ through us. I felt like Paul when he said, I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Or like the psalmist in our call to worship this morning, I lift my eyes unto the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord. I felt like, behold, your God, Dana Manti, Brian Myers. What was I doing? I was exercising my single capability at that point in time. And so helplessly, pleadingly, totally, yet somehow very peacefully, I was presenting myself to him. And he just flowed. Channels only. He flowed through this miracle mindset that we've been talking about. The miracle of a mindset on him that channels the touch of the master's hand. It's like it says in Deuteronomy 13.4. It's all over the place in the Bible. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him. And how do you do all these things that we're supposed to be doing in the Christian walk? Next phrase, but let me get a running start at it again. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him. You shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and then finally here's how you do it, and cling to him. And it all flows from that. How do you follow the Lord your God and fear him? How do you keep his commandments and serve him? You can't do it without him, and so you simply cling to him. Which is what it feels like to present yourself to him with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. It means to place yourself at his disposal whenever you need him to ever greater depths of surrender. 
as instruments that are useless apart from him. To place yourself at his disposal in a posture of complete and concentrated availability as a channel only. Of complete availability to his complete sufficiency through your complete inadequacy. And we can now do this because we've been divorced from the old man, as we saw two weeks ago, and united with the new. And so we have another option. Not that we do all this stuff on our own. We have another option, a single option, that's now a switch in our hand by which we can loose ourselves from the flesh and link ourselves to the spirit whenever we choose. And, we loose, and the loosing and the linking happens through the thinking, through a miracle mindset of surrender that can make a miracle of our lives through the touch of the master's hand. We can get so lazy in our thinking, can't we? I sure do. So forgetful, so distracted. We go on autopilot, so wayward, so sh shallow as we surf from page to page. All we are like sheep, we all go astray, me included. Which is why it's so important that we meet with him each and every day, first thing in the day, to get off on the right foot in our devotions where we cultivate the habit of focusing on him and on him alone. So it's second nature by the time you're confronted later in the day with the biometer. It's where we say, take my life and let it be. Consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my hands, my feet, my voice, my lips. You present yourself to him at the beginning of the day so you'll be in the frame of mind to do it all through the day. At the beginning of the day, you assume what, Lord willing, will be more and more the posture for 16 hours of the day of complete and concentrated availability as a channel only, constantly seeking the touch of the master's hand to make a miracle of your life. And it's all summed up by the poem that you may have heard and with which I'll conclude, titled The Touch of the Master's Hand. Twas battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it scarcely worth his while to waste much time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. What am I bidding, good folks, he cried. Who'll start the bidding for me? A dollar, a dollar, then two, only two, two dollars. Who'll make it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, going for three. But no, from far back in the room, a gray-haired man came forward and picked up the bow. Then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening the loosened strings, he played a melody pure and sweet as a caroling angel sings. The music ceased, and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, What am I bid for the old violin? And he held it up with the bow. A thousand dollars. Who will make it two? Two thousand. Who will make it three? 3,000 once, 3,000 twice, and going, going, gone, said he. The people cheered, but some of them cried. We do not quite understand once what changed its worth. Swift came the reply, the touch of the master's hand. Are you going once, going twice, 
going, going, almost gone. Surrender to the Savior of man. See the worth of a soul and the change that is wrought by the touch of the Master's hand. Father, we thank you for your word. How firm a foundation is laid in your word for the way we live our lives. Thank you that it's all in Christ. Father, help us to have the presence of mind to turn to him, even as we will do right now. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.